Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 265, The Battle of Tenton Hall. And zombies, maybe. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Alexander, Kristen, and Jan for signing up already. There's so much that the Chronicle hides from us after the death of Alfred. And Edward's apple seems to have fallen fairly far from the tree, because the record that his court produces during his reign is relatively sparse, even by Anglo-Saxon standards. But even with all of its contradictory statements and black holes, the Chronicle couldn't hide the fact that a storm was coming. The military under Alfred had been reformed. Far from being a professional class of full-time warriors, now the bulk of the army was comprised of conscripts drawn from the local population, who were trained, outfitted, and served in rotating shifts throughout the year. The military might of Wessex now hinged on the Ferd. Now Mercia during this time had taken a similar posture, and this meant that while the royal personal guard and the warbands that served at the highest levels were probably still professional soldiers, the way that the Anglo-Saxons carried out war was no longer a matter of warbands and special forces operations. Now, large numbers of moderately trained troops were stationed all throughout the kingdom, and they could be mobilized quickly. This was a categorical shift in how war was carried out in southern Britain. So when Edward and Athelflaed decided to raise the Firds of Wessex and Mercia, this was an invasion force on a scale that had rarely been seen from the Anglo-Saxons. Not even King Alfred's fight with Haston involved a combined force of this scale. Alfred's fight was fought on multiple fronts, with multiple units all throughout Wessex and Mercia. Taking it all into account, it was huge, but they never all stood on the same battlefield. His children, however, were now amassing a single gargantuan force. And you simply don't need something that big to just go and fetch a handful of holy bones. In fact, if the goal really was to steal St. Oswald's bones, the better choice would have been to send a small band, which could move undetected. And it also wouldn't have had to been fed at the price of a king's ransom. But that's not what Mercia and Wessex were doing. Instead, what they were doing was expending a huge amount of resources and putting their wealth at stake. The wealth of their land, their yields, and the very workers who made all of that wealth possible. So you might be wondering why. Well, our first clue is their destination, Lindsay. The kingdom of Lindsay was never much of a power player in its own right. But throughout Anglo-Saxon history, this territory has been a major sticking point for its more powerful neighbors. Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia, they had all expressed an interest in obtaining it at one time or another. But as for Lindsay in the 10th century, well, they hadn't been independent since the days of Offa, and they still weren't. Only now, they were being occupied by the Danes. And that didn't really end their troubles, because thanks to the fact that they were right in the middle of the Scandinavian territories, Lindsay was once again discovering that they were an enticing target for Mercia, and actually this time, Wessex. And part of what made it so enticing was that it was really difficult to reach by land from the north or the south. See, this was long before the fens were drained and the Humber estuary was more firmly defined. 
Getting to Lindsay from East Anglia or Northumbria during this era involved crossing marshes, rivers, and all manner of other natural obstacles. And they were the sort of obstacles that could reduce a good portion of your force before you even got into a fight. However, if you approached Lindsay from the west, from Mercia, well, that way was pretty dry and relatively easy. And if you could manage to hold that little kingdom, you would cleave the Scandinavian territories in two. East Anglia would be cut off from its more powerful northern neighbors. And instead, once those lands were connected to Mercia, the Scandinavians of East Anglia would be surrounded and isolated. So, if your plan was to start a war to oust the Scandinavians from the kingdoms south of the Humber, you could pick worse places than Lindsay to start your campaign. But you would need a really big army. And it just so happened that a big army was exactly what Mercia and Wessex had assembled. But who led this great army that was looking to reunite the Anglo-Saxon South? Well, the record doesn't actually say. This whole thing is strange. And again, in some versions of the Chronicle, it sounds more like a corpse relocation. But not in all of them. And when you look at those other versions, you see a massive army, the likes of which Britain may not have seen for hundreds of years. But we still lack crucial details. And exactly the sort of details that the record would have normally given us 10 years earlier. For example, when King Edward and his eldermen marched into East Anglia in 902, we were given names. When the men of Kent fought against the King of East Anglia and Athelwald Atheling, we were given a huge list of various nobles who fought in that battle, as well as a list of those who died, on both sides. That sort of record-keeping had become somewhat of a standard operating procedure. But in the versions of the Chronicle that actually cover this invasion force, for some reason, we're not given that detail. We aren't told which nobles accompanied the army, we're not told who led it, nor do we know which nobles fought and died. And that's odd. Now, faced with this vacuum of detail, a few older scholars have suggested that it was King Edward and Athelred, Lord of Mercia, who led the fight. But that's far from a consensus view. However, there's a good chance that any of you who've heard about this period probably heard that version. Because author Ian Walker, in his book Mercia and the Making of England, posited in the year 2000 that Athelred, Lord of Mercia, was wounded in the fighting that resulted from this invasion, and it was that wound that would ultimately claim his life. Now, I want to be absolutely clear on this fact. I cannot find any backing in the record for this version of the events. And that's the trouble with pop history books. They're notoriously unreliable, and part of that is because they're not peer-reviewed, and thus they can be a little fast and loose with the details. So, to be clear... I'm not aware of any contemporary record that states that Athelred led the army into Lindsay, nor that he was wounded in battle during this time, nor that he died of battle wounds. The version of these events as told by Walker seems to stretch a little too close to fan fiction for my liking. And if it was 2012, I wouldn't even mention that theory in the show because of how much it lacks any backing. But unfortunately, it's not 2012. If it was, we'd probably be listening to Call Me Maybe or watching Parks and Rec. But we aren't. Instead, it's 2018, and everything is awful. And because of that, I have to correct the record. Because a book series had taken that odd theory, 
popularized it, and then repackaged it into a TV series. It's called The Last Kingdom. And overall, it's a fun show. And they even get some of the history right. However, if you're watching that show, you might have some funny ideas about this particular story. So let's fix them. So, Last Kingdom fans, brace yourselves. Athelred, the eventual husband of Athelflaed, wasn't a young stud muffin. Based on the record we have of his activities, he was older by Athelflaed by a significant margin. I mean, by the time that we're sure he was ruling Mercia, Athelflaed was just 11 years old. Furthermore, Athelred was sick in the last years of his life, and it was a sickness that would claim his life. Yeah, he didn't die from manly battle wounds, just from mundane old sickness. And how am I so certain of this? Well, because the fragmentary Irish annals specifically tell us that. By the time that Athelflaed was making deals with Ingemund, Athelred was already terribly sick. I mean, that's why she was making those deals. And when Ingemund attacked Chester, you might remember that the Mercians sent messengers to the Irish who were allied with Ingemund. And those messengers said something that's rather telling. They said, quote, Life and health to you from the king of the Saxons, who was ill, and from the queen, who holds all authority over the Saxons, end quote. Athelred was super sick, and Athelflaed was taking care of business while he was in bed. And considering that the scribes were clear that it was a sickness that would claim his life, I find it very hard to believe that a guy who was so sick that he couldn't send messengers or meet with Ingemund himself would suddenly rally, go on campaign, and then die from a battle wound, despite the fact the scribes say otherwise. So unfortunately, as fun as The Last Kingdom is, it's not a documentary, and it looks like Cornwall got caught up in a fringe, outdated theory that seems to be mostly based on assumptions of men only dying in tough, manly ways. And I assume also assumptions that the Welsh and Irish are liars. And now that we've cleared that up, we come back to the core question. Who was leading the combined army? Well, that's a tough question. Some versions of the Chronicle tell us that Edward sent the army. They actually use that word, sent. But sending an army and leading it are two very different acts. And this is how war will be waged in the future. And actually, is how war is waged right now. So this might not strike you as an odd statement. But in the era of the Anglo-Saxons, it was normal and expected that a leader would lead their warbands into battle themselves. Alfred was in the field repeatedly. So were his brothers, his father, his grandfather, and so on. It would be weird if the leaders of Mercia and Wessex weren't leading their troops in this kind of momentous offensive against the Northmen. And King Edward had led armies into war in the past, at least as far back as the Battle of Farnham. And we've seen him personally engaging in war since then, including that punitive attack carried out against East Anglia in 902. And from these engagements, we've learned that King Edward was an experienced and aggressive leader in war. So you would assume that he would be present for this sort of invasion. But what about the Mercian leadership? As we've been talking about for weeks now, The indications we have in the record, despite what version A of the Chronicle might have us believe, is that Mercia was far more of a kingdom than it was an earldom. And considering that this wasn't simply a West Saxon army, but rather a combined Mercian-West Saxon army, you have to think that Mercia would have come to the field with their own commander. But who was it? Who stepped up? 
I'm honestly not sure. And I bet that some of you right now are shouting Athelflaed, obviously. And I can totally see why you'd make that argument. In fact, the reason why I'm going through these facts so carefully is because this might be the first time that Athelflaed led troops in the field. But only perhaps. And here's why. Now, the first thing to know is that Athelflaed specifically had a reason to cause a ruckus, since it was the Danes who supported Ingemund when he broke their agreement and tried to conquer Chester. So more than anyone else, Athelflaed had a reason to want to kick a Dane in the teeth. Furthermore, there's the simple fact that leaders were typically present for major military engagements during this era. And Athelflaed had been functionally leading Mercia for years at this point. In fact, the Mercian register from this period even goes so far as to mention that Athelflaed was continuing her father's defensive infrastructure work, and that she constructed a fortress at Bramsbury on the same year as this invasion. Not Athelred. Athelflaed specifically ordered that construction. So, we are seeing evidence that she's ruling with, quote, all authority, end quote, just as the Irish annals stated. Additionally, I find it suspect that the West Saxon record suddenly gets tight-lipped about engagements during the era of Athelflaed, even though it typically touts the successes of the House of Wessex. And that suspicion is bolstered by the fact that the Chronicle has a demonstrable history of erasing Athelflaed from the record. That's why we're often in the position of having to turn to the Mercian Register, the Irish Annals, and elsewhere for her story. And with all of these factors, you could easily build a case for the possibility that Athelflaed wasn't just building fortresses, but she was also fulfilling her royal duties in the field, and that because she was a rival to Edward, because she was a woman, and because the Chronicle was all about Wessex and tended to downplay Mercia, she was written out of that role. I can totally see that. And to be honest, I find that story far more likely than the story of the young, virile Athelred and the case of the nasty battle wound. Furthermore, my gut feeling is that she probably did have some sort of presence on the battlefield. But the trouble is that it's just a feeling. I don't have any documentary evidence saying that Athelflaed accompanied the troops in the field, so I don't feel comfortable saying that that's what happened here for sure. Now, was she the person who agreed to send the troops? Almost certainly, considering that she held all authority in Mercia. But as for actually accompanying the troops, the culture of the time was against her, and while she does appear to have been a special case in a lot of respects, for this particular battle, with her husband still alive, I just don't think we could say with confidence that she definitely would have led the Mercians. It's possible, but due to the lack of prior military service and the cultural constraints, it's not nearly as certain as Edward. Furthermore, another member of the House of Wessex was old enough to start getting some battle experience, and he also had some connections in Mercia, having been raised there. But for political reasons, he might have been ignored in the record. The person leading the Mercian force might have been young Athelstan. The flip side, of course, is that it's possible that the reason we know so little about who was there and who they fought is because no one of import was leading them at all and so there wasn't anyone of high enough station to come back and tell the scribes. It's possible that what was initially sent out was basically a large-scale raid, and Edward and Athelflaed stayed back, merely giving them the simple order of go into Lindsay and f*** their sh up. That's also possible, though I don't think I'd say that it was likely. But whoever was leading the army, it entered Lindsay in 909 or 910. And I imagine that what they had in mind 
was similar to the punitive attack Edward and his eldermen carried out against East Anglia in 902. A large-scale invasion that would, once it was within the borders, fan out and cause as much destruction as possible while also staying close enough together that they could provide mutual support should any opposition come calling. And they would need to stay together because they planned to operate openly and aggressively for weeks. Five, to be exact. And five weeks is a long time. It's an even longer time when you're under stress. And I guarantee that this invasion would have been stressful. The combined army of Mercia and Wessex were far from their villages, far from the reinforcements, far from the burrs that could provide them with a defensive point to rest. They were deep in hostile territory, forever looking over their shoulders and wondering when the local forces would organize an army large enough to challenge them directly. And this wasn't simply an occupying force. In fact, they weren't an occupying force at all. They were there to terrorize. Here's what one version of the Chronicles says they were up to. Quote, King Edward sent an army from both Wessex and Mercia, which very much harassed the northern army by their attacks on men and property of every kind. They slew many of the Danes and remained in the country five weeks. End quote. Now, don't forget that until recently, Lindsay was Anglo-Saxon territory. Mercian territory, in fact. And we know from other records that much of the local population remained following the conquest. So the attacks on men and property of every kind probably involved attacking a lot of Anglo-Saxons who were just living on the wrong side of the border. And as for the slaying of the Danes, well, my guess is that a lot of them were Anglo-Saxons as well. Unless prior to the pillaging and slaughter, the army sat down to conduct extensive interviews with the locals and asked them about their family lineage and how long they'd been in the area. Furthermore, a force of that size would have required enormous resources. So in addition to the harassing that they were sent to conduct, they also would have had to pillage the countryside just to stay fed. And if you happen to have an estate or a settlement that looked reasonably defensible, well... The combined army would have probably wanted that as well, since it would provide a reasonably secure location for them to sleep, at least until it came time to move on. And when they did move on, all the portable valuables inside probably would have gone missing, likely along with anyone who looked like a marketable slave. People often forget that this was a time of slavery. But for five weeks, this continued. And then once they looted the lands as much as they dared, they made their way back to friendly territory before Jorvik had a chance to do anything about it. They were triumphant. And this pissed off the Danes. So either on the same year or the following year in summer, the Danes of Northumbria said, Oh really? Two can play that game. And they assembled their own army. And one version of the Chronicle has a rather strange statement as to what caused this fight. It implies that this wasn't necessarily a raiding of Lindsay, but rather, quote, the army in Northumberland broke the truce and despised every right that Edward and his son demanded of them and plundered the land of the Mercians. So what were the rights that Edward and his son demanded of them? Also, which son? Athelstan would have been of an age to make demands, being a teenager by this point. But the next eldest son, Ilfweird, Lady Alflad's son, well, he was just a tween. 
So are we seeing Athelstan taking a more powerful leadership role in Wessex? If that's the case, that would be an important part of the puzzle, because that fact might undercut the later indications that he wasn't intended to rule due to his own mother's background. It's intriguing, isn't it? And like with much of this period, I don't have answers for you. Just questions. And here's another question. Are we talking about one invasion here or two? And before we break this down, I'm going to give you the version of this story that exists if you put all the surviving versions of the Chronicle together. Just a list of every event that was recorded. That way you can see for yourself why it's such a confusing story, and why, when I read the various analyses of this period, no one can seem to agree exactly what happened. Everyone seems to have their own take on it, and for good reason. It's a mess. Here goes. In 909, the body of St. Oswald was taken from Bardney to Mercia. In 910, King Edward sent a combined army from Wessex and Mercia to attack the Northmen and their property for five weeks. Then they fought the Danes at Tetton Hall and were victorious. Also, Athelflaed built a fortress at Bramsbury. In alternate 910, a fleet came up from Brittany and ravaged the Severn, and the Battle of Tetton Hall happened then. And then, Athelred died, and Edward took London and Oxford from Mercia. In 911, Athelred died. Again. But this time, Edward didn't take London or Oxford. In alternate 911, the Northumbrians broke the truce and invaded Mercia, but were slaughtered along with a ton of their nobles at what looks like the Battle of Tenton Hall. Again. But this time, Athelred didn't die, so I guess Oxford and London stayed where they were. And then, in 912, Athelred died. Again. And Edward took Oxford and London. Again. And meanwhile, Athelflaed built fortresses, but this time not at Bramsbury, but instead at Shergate and Bridgenorth. So, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about multiple invasions? Is the Severn fleet different from the Northumbrian army? So based on that, are we talking about two invasions? Were there even more? And which one of them fought at Tenton Hall? And what's up with Athelred's three deaths? Was Mercia running a Weapon X program? Was the reason for this invasion, or invasions, a response to the ravaging of Lindsay, or was it Edward's demands on Northumbria, or something else? These are all reasonable questions, and we don't have answers. And that's what scholars are tasked with picking apart as best as they can. It's a mess, and we're going to try and break it down here a bit. Now, depending on the version of the Chronicle you read, the Danish invasion of Mercia was either on the same year when the attack of Lindsay happened, and thus it was a direct response to that attack. Or it was a completely different army that launched from Brittany and they had ravaged their way up the Severn the year after Lindsay was attacked. Or it was an attack out of Northumbria, apparently via land for some reason. And it had nothing to do with Lindsay. And instead, it was because of the demands that were placed on them by Edward and his son. Now ultimately... All of these records seem to involve the same bloody end, but as for how it starts and who starts it, it's a hot mess. And honestly, I don't know who's telling the truth here, if anyone. But for right now, we're going to go with a version that has the most information, which is the story that the invasion came out of Northumbria and that they immediately invaded Mercia, which right there, right away, makes a lot of scholars lift an eyebrow. Because why weren't the Danes using their ships to make an end run and strike Wessex? 
After all, if they started this war because they are mad at Edward and his son, as this version of the Chronicle states, then why go to Mercia? Well, it could be because there's a piece of the puzzle missing, again. And therefore, it's something we can't guess. Or this could be another clue that Athelflaed was way more involved than the Chronicle wants to admit. But either way, the Danes were now in Mercia, and they were raiding and pillaging as much as they could, and as quickly as they could. Now, we're told that the Danes had good intelligence, and they knew that the king was gathering a naval fleet in Kent. And therefore, they made the calculation that Edward and the bulk of his army would just be stuck in Kent, waiting for the remainder of the ships to arrive before they could board. And with the concentration of military power so far to the east, that gave the Danes the window they needed to loot without fear of retribution. At least for a time. But they weren't stupid. They knew that, unlike the fractured territory of Danelaw, Mercy and Wessex had been turned into a well-oiled machine that could marshal troops with lethal speed. So, while the concentration of military power in Kent gave the Northumbrians an opportunity, it was a short-lived one, and they would need to grab as much as they could in the short time that they had. But the network of burrs all throughout Wessex and Mercia had spotted the approaching army. And what they saw was too much for any one furred to handle. The Danes of Northumbria had marshaled thousands of warriors, and their army was being led by multiple kings, earls, governors, and other important figures of Northumbrian society. This wasn't a small engagement. This was a large-scale strike back. So while there were individual firds out there, and they were holding various fortified settlements, well, all they could do when faced with a force of this scale was lock the gates and send word for help. And that would take time. Now, the burgle system was great, and it doubled as a medieval version of the Pony Express. However, it was still constrained by the speed of travel. It took a while for messages to be sent, and for messages to be returned, and for soldiers to be moved from one location to another. I mean, the fastest that you could probably go during this period would be on horseback. And so traveling simply would take time. So, the Danes looted. They pillaged. They ransacked. They inflicted the same sort of misery upon Mercia that the West Saxons and Mercians had inflicted upon Lindsay. Now, military buffs often like to imagine medieval warfare. And when they do, they typically conjure up these huge set-piece battles and then sweep these other matters, you know, like the looting and pillaging and slaughter, under the narrative rug. Because frankly, killing civilians, taking their stuff and burning their homes isn't very heroic. But it happens in war. And it isn't just the bad guys who do it. And so the pain that Mercia had inflicted upon Lindsay was now being returned in kind by Northumbria. Though the Danes really did have to be quick about it. It was only a matter of time before Edward would learn of the attack, get his army onto their ships, and sail to meet them. So, after filling their wagons with loot, King Eowil and King Halfdan ordered their army to turn and make the long journey back to Northumbrian territory. The point had been made. The trouble, though, was that while the army was looting the towns and countryside, the messengers had done their duty, and firds from the various burrs of Mercia and Wessex were assembling. And while the Northumbrian army was retreating, 
the army of Mercia and Wessex were rapidly approaching to meet them in battle. And the two forces met at a place called Tenton Hall. Maybe. Other records indicate that this battle happened near Tenton Hall at a place called Wednes Field, or in Old English, Woden's Field. But there, the Mercian and West Saxon Ferds attacked the Northumbrians from the rear. We're given precious little detail about this battle in the various forms of the Chronicle that we have. The tactics, strategy, and leadership of the Anglo-Saxon army is completely left out. All we're told is that, quote, they came up with the rear of the enemy as he was on his way homeward, and there fought with him and put him to flight and slew many thousands of his men, end quote. So, at least to me, that kind of sounds like an ambush. But there's one thing that almost all the versions of the Chronicle that actually mention this battle also make sure to point out. And it's this. This fight was a slaughter. One version even says, quote, almost all perished, end quote. And they're speaking about the Scandinavian side. And again, we're given that detail, but we're left to wonder who was leading the Anglo-Saxon forces in the fight. The closest that we get is an entry cataloging the dead among the Northumbrian forces. Kings Eowil and Halfdan were killed, as were Earls Oter and Skurf, Governors Agamund, Othulf, and Benesing, some guy named Anulf the Swarthy, which is an amazing name, Osfirth the Collector, and Governors Thunfirth and Guthfirth. Now, the last couple do kind of sound Anglo-Saxonish. But we do know that the Scandinavians of Northumbria mixed with the Anglo-Saxons, and there's no indication that they were part of the West Saxon Mercian side, so I really don't know if they were on one side or the other. But that's the account of the battle we're given. That's it. And then, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, died. Maybe. He may have also died earlier. Putting all the versions of the Chronicle together, Athelred dies in 910, 911, and 912. So either the game of scribe telephone had broken down by this period, or there was some freaky paranormal shit going down. But at some point, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, died. And Athelflad, Lady of Mercia, became the sole ruler of Mercia. So here we are, in the early 910s, after nearly a decade of relative peace, and the war for the South had come roaring back and the children of Alfred the Great, commanding the two great Anglo-Saxon realms in the south, were ready. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we're on pretty much every other form of social media, and you can find links to all the various communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Why is it?